Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At this point, most shows are winding down. Roy is just getting started. The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Thank you for your emails to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com, all of them, even those who um, seem to think that I'm not nice enough to Donald Trump. And then there are those who think I'm too nice to Donald Trump. We'll talk more about Trump tomorrow. But uh, lots of emails about Alison Azar and uh, what happened in Parliament this week with the global affairs ministers. He can't say foreign anymore. Because in Justin Trudeau's Global word, nobody's world, nobody's foreign. Sorry, the year. Global affairs minister, foreign, foreign global affairs minister, or global foreign affairs minister, or whatever he is. Stefan Dion had two thumbs down for Alison Azar. He says no, it was for the conservative MP who brought up the issue. Yeah. Monsieur Dion, I remember you. You're the guy who leaned across the table to shake hands with Jack Layton and some guy named Duceppe. That's right, Gilles Duceppe. Remember him, the leader of the Bloc Québécois? That's right. You, Mr. Dion, were the head of the Liberal Party and you'd schemed to bypass the vote of the Canadian people just a few weeks earlier, not to grant you or the New Democrats or the Bloc power. But you made the deal, the accord, I think you called it. When you leaned across the table, what the hell are you doing? What is he doing as foreign affairs minister? I'll talk to Alison Azar tomorrow. She says it was one of the most dis- disappointing experience she's had in Parliament, and she feels like she was um, disrespected by Kyoto's owner. The name of his dog. I usually like dog owners. Kyoto. I have the rowdies. My good friend Scott Newark, former Alberta Crown attorney, former for, uh, policy, senior policy advisor to the Federal Minister for Public Safety, and former executive director of the Canadian Police Association, who has just finished a report on Canada's justice system for the Macdonald Laurier Institute. That's right, isn't it? Yes. You have been uh, the go-to voice, not just for me, but for so many people for years about our justice system in Canada. And I want to talk to you about a couple of things that you've alerted me to, like the case of a guy who's, for the fourth time, not criminally responsible. When does that run out? Um, but t- tell us, please, let's start with your what you, what you, what you have for the McDonnell-Laurier Commission, or Institute, rather, about the justice system of Canada. What are you telling them, Scott? Well, the, uh, the issue of... Um, uh the lack of efficiency of the Canadian criminal justice system has 
really been sort of front and center for the last uh, couple of years with people commenting on how, how it's taking longer and longer for cases to get processed. And uh, the, the government of Ontario, the government of Alberta have done studies on it. There's currently a, Senate, a Senate uh, Legal um, uh, Affairs Committee is studying it. Um, the McDonnell-Laurie Institute also a couple of weeks ago released, a, in effect, a report card simply documenting the, the fact of the delays and the increasing inefficiency. And so uh, what I uh, decided to do was to, uh, you know, it's sort of the instinct, always, uh, instead of just stating something, uh, try to drill down a little bit and see if we could find out what some of the reasons for the delays were, why the delays were occurring, and given that, if we could do that, then what some of the things are that we could actually do to try to improve it. And so that is the essence of the uh, report that I did uh, for the uh, McDonnell-Laurie Institute. And essentially it... Uh, uh, if I was to pick probably the single biggest thing, is it focused on something you and I have talked about for years, how our justice system has become so much more process-focused than it ever used to be. It's not so much uh, now anymore about whether the evidence is relevant to the question of innocence or guilt. It's about whether or not the evidence is admissible. And that, of course, is a consequence of the Charter and the rule of various rulings from the courts that have placed this emphasis on process. And it has had an impact on the way in which the justice system is able to uh, process cases. And in some, some instances, there's some relatively small things that could be done to, uh, to improve it, um, changing a couple of things that, about the choices about how cases proceed, whether it's with a preliminary inquiry or directly to provincial court. But unless you have that basic information about what the causes of the delays are, um, essentially uh, we don't have a roadmap as to how to fix it. And one of the things that was noted in the Senate committee uh, study, and as well in the recent uh, Supreme Court, a very ironic Supreme Court of Canada decision in a case called Jordan, where they said they set some arbitrary time limits for case processing, is that what has happened as well, too, is that we have sort of evolved, or take your pick, devolved into what is uh, a culture of delay in the justice system and an acceptance of that culture. Uh, again, as you and I have discussed over the years, there's probably... You know, no public system um, less uh, inclined towards self-analysis than the justice system right. tends to think that everything that it does uh, must be perfect. Scott, in, in layman's terminology, what are we dealing with? Didn't the Supreme Court a few years ago say that, and they, this is part of it, within a specific period of time, you have to be, be, be go to trial, and didn't they release like 90, I think, or, or, or more people, including individuals who were, were charged with manslaughter because their cases hadn't gone to court I quickly think enough? I thinking of the Askov case. That's the one. Yeah, but it, about maybe uh, two, three months ago, Roy, they just came out with another ruling called Jordan, yeah. where uh, they literally set arbitrary time limits uh, on cases that if it isn't the case isn't completed by then, there's a presumption that the Section 11 char delay charter rights in Askoff have been violated. I must admit, I, I got a bit of a smirk on my face as I was reading the decision of the Supreme Court bemoaning this delay, that if they were actually looking for a cause of the delay, they might look in a mirror, seeing as how so much of what has happened in terms of delay is a result of Supreme Court rulings. Okay. Whether that, you know, correct or incorrect, the point of it is we need to identify what some of the problems are right. so we can then start actually making some of the changes to address it. So your your report is available on the website of the yeah. McDonnell-Laurier Institute? Yeah. All right. Yes. And Improve I think uh, 
what you'll see as well, too, is uh, there's some very practical things. And again, Roy, over the years on different cases or subjects you and I have touched on, I mean, for example, we provide legal aid funding uh, based on a system where the lawyers get paid, private lawyers get hired by the legal aid system, where they get paid based on the amount of time they spend on a case. That's right. Uh, That's right. I remember we talked about that. Maybe. So the longer you're on the case, the more money you make. <laughs> maybe if we and who's paying you? The taxpayer. System, it might improve the case processing. Yes. So if I'm defending Scott Newark, and I'm a uh, well, you'll probably win because I, I certainly couldn't be guilty. No, no, I'm talking about you're talking about a different Scott Newark. <laughs> so, so if I'm defending this different Scott Newark. And, I'm, and I know that there's money available, and I can get the thing resolved in 17 days, but if I hang on for another couple of weeks, not that anybody would. Oh, of course not, but, you know, maybe it's not just that. worth a look, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Just, look, at, just, look, at the, look at the issue of pretrial custody credit yeah. we've talked about yeah. so many times. Okay, I have to, I have, to take right. a, I have to take a break, buddy. Improving the efficiency of the criminal justice system in Canada. The time is now. McDonnell-Laurier Institute. When we come back, we're going to talk to Scott about... Jeff Weber, or Weber, I'm not sure whether it's Weber or Weber, but um, he's been found not criminally responsible quite a few times because he hears voices in his head. And he's uh, been charged with some very serious stuff. And then there's the case of the Ottawa driver who cut off another car, crossed over in the center lane, barely missing oncoming traffic, forcing other drivers out of his way, and running into a car driven by an 87-year-old woman. So the cops arrest this guy. Seems impaired. He's stumbling. His fly was open. He couldn't manage to zip it up again. So they gave him a breathalyzer. And it came out zero, zero, zero. What's the story behind that one? We'll talk to Scott Newark about it when we come back. He weighs both sides of the story and chooses what's right over what's wrong. More Roy Green on the Chorus Radio Network. Next half hour, it's Catherine Swift, Linda Leatherdale, and Michelle Simpson, the Beauties and the Beast segment. We're going to be talking about, uh, you know, Scott Newark with us now, former Crown Attorney in Alberta, also the former Senior Policy Advisor to the Federal Minister for Public Safety. So, Scott, not criminally responsible is a term that be- Canadians became familiar with, particularly after the uh, Vincent Lee and Tim McLean um, occurrence. Terrible situation on uh, in Manitoba, uh, and uh, there was a lot of talk then about dissatisfaction with someone who was declared not criminally responsible. Not everybody, but some uh, de- being declared not criminally responsible, and then just a year later being released into society with no criminal record because they had a mental health issue. Now there's some validity to the to the to the fundamental position, but. There are some issues and some problems and some cases that keep people shaking their heads. Talk to us about this gentleman named Jeff Weber. Well, it's a, a case from uh, this week in uh, uh, in Ottawa, last week in Ottawa, and what what uh, obviously caught the reporters, <clears throat> excuse me, attention about it was. This guy, essentially, for absolutely no reason whatsoever, he was on a bus, he got off the bus, he went into a store, he bought a hammer, 
sort of downtown Ottawa, walked uh, up a block a, a little bit, and then um, started hitting the guy in the uh, the head with the uh, with the hammer. Um, and you know, there was no sort of uh, logical or rational uh, uh, purpose to any of this stuff. And so, not surprisingly, it turned out when they you know they started doing some investigating, it turned out that he'd been. Uh, previously, uh, he had, as you put it, mental health issues. But this is a little bit of a twist because this guy has three previous times, uh, going back to 2006, been charged with cri- violent criminal offenses or uh, uh, abductions. Um, and each time he's been found not criminally responsible. And as you just mentioned, he then somehow he gets released again and he again commits another offense, but is ultimately found not criminally responsible. And so um, the, uh, I think the, the judge, uh, and uh, to my knowledge as well, too, this is now a new record uh, for Canada. Take your pick, high or low. This guy now has, this is his fourth finding that although he did what he did, he was not to be held criminally responsible. The old, the old phrase was insane. And the idea is that the individual is incapable of knowing whether it's right or wrong or even knowing what he's doing. But what it, what it does more than anything else, I think, is it raises the question, and this is what I certainly hope is going to occur. Um, in, in many ways, the, the same things, Roy, that you and I first started talking about uh, 25 years ago when I was still a prosecutor involved in some of the cases about why repeat offenders were being released on parole and then going out and harming or killing people. Well, here's the same issue, okay? It may well be that this guy is not criminally responsible, but why in hell is he keep being released well, that's the question, the isn't it? Is. Let me just go through a couple of the items, that, uh, the, the charges he had. As you mentioned, 06, threatened a mother and daughter as they walked beside the Ottawa River. He had to be tasered, and he was carrying a knife. The next year, he was charged with attempting to abduct a 10-year-old girl from the lobby of a Toronto hotel. In 2011, he left Ottawa for B.C. without permission and forced his way into a car driven by a young woman who he assaulted and terrorized. Yeah. And then, then, then came the hammer incident. Yeah, and you know what? When you read the uh, the extracts from the uh, the judge's decision in this case, and this judge is somebody who has long experience as a criminal defense lawyer in Ottawa. Uh, trust me, uh, it's in a, it's in polite language, but this judge is basically saying, in my opinion, that the people who are responsible for his treatment and for the ultimate decision in releasing him into the community didn't do a very good job. And I hope, like in some of the cases uh, that, that I've been involved in where the, it's the parole board or Correctional Service of Canada that are involved, I think there should be some civil liability for the people making the decision that release this guy onto our Absolutely streets. agree. Now, Ken, when the two minutes we have left, there's also the story about uh, the individual who was driving erratically. Yeah. Again in Ottawa, um, cuts off a car, crosses over the center line, barely missing oncoming traffic, forcing the other drivers out of the way, running into a car driven by an 87-year-old woman, and when the cops arrested one Carson Bingley, they thought he was had been drinking, because he wasn't walking well. He couldn't manage no to zip up his, yeah. his zipper, and what did they find? Well, what they actually found was that there wasn't alcohol. Uh, and so they, um, I think they took a saliva test from him or something, um, and he ultimately admitted that he'd been smoking marijuana. So he was charged impaired, it's impaired driving by drug, which is, is still a criminal offense. But why it's in the news is that the court ultimately 
found him not guilty because there were conflicts in the expert evidence that was called as to whether or not he was actually impaired or whether or not the uh, the observations fit with the impairment and whether that impaired his ability to drive. And what this really points out, Roy, is that as your uh, good friends Justin and Stéphane Dion proceed with the legalization of uh, marijuana, we need to have the technology in place like we have with breathalyzers where we, there's a defined amount of alcohol per you know, a milliliter in your blood, it would be a defined amount of THC in your blood that equates to impairment. Because if we don't, it is going to be this nightmare of trying to subjectively decide about what those levels are and, in fact, whether or not that equals impairment. Well, I have to tell you, we know that the Prime Minister, my good friend Justin, yeah. smoked dope while he was in office as an MP because he said he had. And, and I've been reviewing his decisions over the last year, Scott, and I have some doubts, <laughs> if you know what I'm but, saying. I do, and I know you think very highly of him. Oh, but, um, good one. The, the point of this really is, though, to take it even back to what we started with, here's an example of a change to the law that if we don't think this through and get the right technology in place and get the right rules in place in terms of evidence admissibility, it's going to have a huge and negative impact on the efficiency of our criminal court uh, processing. Yeah. Yeah, so stories are amazing. And uh, you shake yeah. your head. I mean, amazing is not the right word, but... But it's why you need to keep asking the right questions, yeah. getting the right information so we can make the right change. Well, you know, in the 1990s, uh, the justice system was the number one issue in this country that people talked about uh, consistently. It was the number one issue. Of course, uh, the economy and other factors figured uh, figured in, but, but justice was the number one issue, and we need to not lose sight of the fact that it remains a significantly important fact of Canadian life. And base our decisions on facts. Yes, yes sir. Mr. Newark, I thank you for the time as always. Pleasure as always, sir. All the best. Bye-bye. Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney and uh, former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association. So the McDonald laurier Institute, and you'll find Scott's report there, Improving the Efficiency of the Criminal Justice System in Canada. The time is now. The time is now. 27 minutes and 23 seconds after the hour. I can't tell you specifically what the hour is because we're on in different time zones. But when we come back, we're going to be joined by the beauties. Catherine Swift, workingcanadians.ca, described as Canada's most powerful woman. Also with us, Michelle Simpson, former seatmate of the aforementioned Justin, Prime Minister of Canada, when... Michelle and Justin were both members of Parliament. He still is. She's with us. And Linda Leatherdale, the former money editor of the Toronto Sun. There, the beauty sign, the beast. When we come back, we're going to get at a few things, including you-know-who. Stay with us.